This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Eek. Today on our Mind Matters segment, the the, the impact of uh, climate crisis and climate changes uh, and all the uh, you know environmental issues that we read about on the news increasingly um, of course we know that climate uh, change has far-reaching uh, effects uh, not only on the environment uh, but also things like the economy uh, people's livelihoods now we're thinking about uh, its impact on our mental health as well so uh, joining me in the studio today consultant psychiatrist Dr. Ravi Varma Rao Panisilvam um, and he, we will be discussing how climate change as well as the extreme weather events that are becoming increasingly familiar for all of us and how these issues are increasing the risk of mental health disorders and uh, this term of eco-anxiety, why more people are experiencing it, how would you identify in yourself and um, most importantly, of course, what can you do about it? Now, uh, as always, with any mental health issues, if you need emotional support, if you'd like to talk to someone, you can call, for instance, Befrienders KL at 03-7627-2929 or any mental health care provider that is nearest to you. Uh, but let's get into our conversation today. Dr. Ravi, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I am good. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you have come from Sarawak, where you are actually based, to KL for a short trip. And I'm sure that alone has shown you, I don't know, the effects of this this, this um, uh, sprawling um, concrete jungle that KL is and the effects of urbanization and, you know, the, the, the kind of the way even weather impact is different here in KL. Uh, compared to what you're used to, I'm sure. Right. Um, that's a very nice way to put it, but I would like to say that uh, we shouldn't just um, discuss about dangerous development only in the context of KL, the Klang Valley or the Greater Klang Valley. It's happening across. Uh, we You can talk about problems with climate across the country and across the world, actually, um, so what I see is that, you know, when, you, when the plane descends or whenever you go to any urbanized area that's undergoing development, you see these whole areas of places which are completely cleared up. Mm. Forest areas that are suddenly, you can see that, that whole uh, forest, uh, f- the whole part of forest areas that are really um, trees being chopped down mm. and then you see that laterate there and then you get where will this lead to? Mm. And it's not really a nice site. Before the buildings come up, it's not really a nice site. And nowadays, with all that we have been reading and consuming in media, that gives us concern. Mm. And that's actually, it has a term apparently, it's called biospheric concern. Biospheric concern. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, We may get into that a little bit later, but I guess maybe the most obvious link between um, climate change and our mental health is when we look at um, the effects of extreme weather events and natural disasters such as, I think for us in Malaysia, floodings and perhaps related to torrential rains, also like the Batangkali landslide and events like that. What we can see most immediately is the direct impact 
on the mental health of those who were affected, um, whether they lost lives or livelihoods, right? So perhaps you'd like to walk through. Um, and, and of course, people think about immediately physical harm and, uh, you know, uh, the, the loss of property. But what is the impact on their mental health, short and long term? Right. Um, well, there is no health without mental health. Let's start with that. And then when you talk about floods, and I, I think we should specifically focus on floods. They're quite uh, common across the country. You can see floods in every state and every part of the country as well, especially the low-lying areas. Floods are, unless one has experienced floods or one has seen floods or worked with people with, who are affected by floods, there are very serious things. Flood waters are dangerous, not only that you can put yourself at risk of um, uh, injury, death, drowning, electrocution. That's really sad on that. And also uh, the infectious diseases that spread right across, they're really rather unpredictable. This is something that I can share from an experience I did when I was a medical officer of, of a psychological first aid. We went to this place, if I, if I can remember it correctly, it's called... It was in Tatao. It was it's in Bintulu Division. Mm. So I remember one of the victims telling us we just we just didn't know by the morning the waters came up, rose so much higher and came into our houses. Mm. The houses were actually on stilts, so mm. it can rise really fast. And what happens is, and I, recently also I've met, um, you know, I have colleagues who have some relatives who uh, stay uh, stay in villages, and they said the loss of property and the loss of um, the home. The loss of their homes, it's, it's really rather devastating. You have One day you have your television, your sofa set, your kitchen appliances, your home. It's your then, home, actually. Yeah, it's, it's the your, roof over your head. Yeah. Mm. So when you lose that, it's, it puts you in a really powerless state. Mm. You feel very defenseless. And you feel, at the, at the start of it, it's almost like it starts with anything that's shocking. There's some denial to it. And then it sets in, and the reality of the loss. And therein, after the loss, rebuilding... And then the financial toll. Um, sometimes uh, people are not as protected. Mm, they don't have the safeguards. Mm. So getting back up and then trying to go back into normalcy, that's hard. Especially if you are communities that are not very supported. Um, one of the things that has been found in floods and flood responses are when there is a community response, given quickly, people are able to rebuild this. It, it can foster community mm. resilience. Mm. But when it's not there, that starts off. And then what happens is if these floods are a pattern, mm. which they have more and more becoming and um, far worse than that is they happen, but you, we are not really good at predicting them. Or maybe the common person, the intelligent one, the people working in this field, maybe they can. You start worrying, you know, people start worrying, thinking, when will this happen next? Okay, I've rebuilt. How long will this last? I read somewhere that they wrote that, that sometimes when people even see heavy rains coming on, the monsoon comes, they get worried. So the sort of disorders that developed in this context, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and the whole scale of it, and of course a complex trauma response. There is growing literature that says that all these disaster-related mental health situations, yes, they are. You can develop the ones that we already know the uh, anxiety and depressive spectrum and trauma spectrum disorders. Mm -hmm. But the psychopathology of it or the core underpinning of why people get such things, they are rather complex, different, and how they interact. And when you are a community that keeps getting ravaged, 
by such problems. Mm. Not all, but some people are not able to cope. So you do see things like substance abuse going up, violence going up, mm. domestic problems going up. This is a little bit more on the mid and long term part of it. And of course, when economic downturn, livelihoods, and then people are forced to migrate, especially if you stay in an area that floods, you know, you won't want to be staying mm. there. People will be moving. Mm. You have all the problems with migration. Mm. And that, lead, that also is, um, fortunately, a risk factor for problems like uh, suicide, etc. So mm. it's a very complex interplay. It's not just the rise of waters, uh, people going on boats, saving them. Even that is also quite scary. Imagine being stranded. Mm. I think I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the Sri Muda floods, there yes. were people who were stranded at home without food. Absolutely. Completely alone. Mm. That's very frightening. So maybe with what we have discussed, we can clearly see that there are so many points a person's mental health, a family's mental health, a community's mental health mm. can be affected. Mm. Not just the um, immediate um, moments of the trauma, which I think perhaps we can picture, but the rebuilding um, journey and uh, that anxious anticipation of will it happen again, uh, will I have to go through this again, has its very, very long-term severe toll as well. So I, I think that brings me to probably also a very difficult question, do we recognise these effects, especially the medium and long-term effects? I think that is probably one of the difficulties in this part of the world. Um, I guess what we should be mindful is nobody's ignoring these extreme events. They come in media, they come in our conscious thoughts, they come in our uh, forwarded WhatsApp news, our Twitter feed. They are in our consciousness. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was talking to a colleague today because I was. This topic is something that's uh, quite new. Mm. People are not still connecting the dots that everything is related, and everything is related to the climate. It invariably relates to global warming, rising sea levels, deforestation, all of it, uh, and also, of course, um, non-sustainable development that has actually led to what we are going through today. People are aware of the end events, but people, I, I think people still have quite a bit of way to go to connecting the dots, seeing that these things lead to this. And because when you connect the dots, that's when real change can happen. And, uh, and that could actually be what's actually happening now, which is that whole part. We, we have experienced uh, the world and even the country quite a lot of extreme weather events. So people are talking about climate change. We are talking about it. So that's probably, if I would call it, maybe post-traumatic growth, where people are actually mm. getting aware. So mm. it's not all hope is lost, but it's already in conversation. Mm. You start seeing it slowly appear in media. You see ministries devoted to it. It becomes conversation of... Uh, of uh, Political, it becomes di political discourse. Mm. It becomes part of our lives. So when it starts becoming a part of our life, that's when change happens. Mm. But, but also in the course of connecting the dots, I think um, also can be very abstract for some of us would be understanding that climate change uh, affects the social determinants of health. Um, like uh, your financial uh, status, your ability to access shelter, food, you know, such basic needs, and then how those social determinants actually affect mental health. Yep. 
that is actually a rather big problem, and that's uh, the problem of privilege, actually, wherein what happens is um, the people who can actually talk or actually know the full extent of it are the people who have become victims to it, who have suffered the brunt of it. When we don't suffer the brunt of it because uh, we are cushioned by our privilege, you know, you have a roof over your head, you have a few houses, you have... um, uh, you have your social security bank, you have your savings, you have your investments, you have places to go, you stay in a place that's safe, you stay in a neighborhood that has probably sustainable development. And also, that, that comes to the next part, some, some of the changes that we do need to make in order to become more climate conscious are ex- much more expensive options. So when you are fighting against bread and butter issues, when we are looking at uh, income that doesn't come in f- at a day-to-day basis, um, people who have the difficulties of accessing basic needs. It's very hard to think of the abstract. It's hard to think beyond yourself because when thinking about yourself itself, it's very hard as mm-hmm. well. And it doesn't fit in that whole, um, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it doesn't fit in there. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it is part of that. The food that you get, the the shelter that you get, these are all affected by climate. Mm-hmm. So I think that needs... It's just that we, um, the, the privileged are probably um, buffered, you know, right, yeah. a, a few more layers, right? And mm. the people who are vulnerable and not yet affected are, uh, are not made aware. Or sometimes the tragedy is so difficult, uh, so painful that you don't have the time to make those thoughts. Mm. So that's where you do need a bit of a top-down approach where people need to be educated about uh, climate change. And that's what activists do, uh, uh, messaging goes about choices, simple choices. Um, and that's also where big legislations make about. Like, for instance, you ban straws indefinitely. You, bla- you ban plastic bags, single-use plastic bags, by yeah. the way. We start becoming more aware. But we also, and also that part of that getting that awareness is that we all have to realize we are all playing a part of it. Mm. I can't be sitting here talking about this, but there's a lot of... Uh, things that I do in a day-to-day practice, that, that that's not really climate-friendly. Mm-hmm. Well, why do I still do it? Because mm-hmm. uh, that appears to be the easier option, the convenient option, and that's what everybody's doing, and that's the mm-hmm. thing. People are not immune to that. So I want to continue that train of thought when we come back from the break. Um, that idea of um, every little bit that you can do for the environment, but layered with, am I doing enough? And, you know, uh, I'm not doing enough. How much am I contributing to degradation uh, and the climate crisis? Uh, all of that. We can continue to unpack it. Um, we are discussing a pretty big topic today on Mind Matters, how environmental threats can actually threaten your mental health. And joining me in the studio to do that is consultant psychiatrist Dr. Ravi Rama Rao Panisilvam. And we'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. In the studio with me today for the Mind Matters segment, Dr. Ravi Rao Panisovam, consultant psychiatrist, and we're discussing the impact of the climate crisis on our mental health. And these can range from direct effects. If you have been a victim of an extreme weather event or a natural disaster, and you know we spent quite a bit of time earlier talking about floods as a very, very clear example, something very common in Malaysia, something that many people have been affected by. There are short, 
medium and long-term effects to their mental health, to their families and the communities around them in terms of uh, the kinds of uh, risk factors that can develop. And uh, then we went on to talk about what do we do um, in our daily lives that help us to be aware of climate uh, changes and try to mitigate the impacts of uh, of that, right? And we talked a little bit about, let's say, policies like um, not using plastic straws, not using um, single-use plastic bags, and what do we do individually um, to try and uh, be friendly to the environment as well. And so linked to that is... Um, I guess we all try to do our little part. Some of us feel like um, we can do more. Some of us feel like whatever we do is not enough. Some of us don't do anything and still feel a whole lot of, you know, uh, uh, angst and anxiety about it. So I wanted to get your thoughts, Dr. Ravi, on this term eco-anxiety. How do we relate to it? How is it actually linked to climate change? Right. Right. That is a term that's in vogue. I've seen it in Netflix. So I think it's in folk. Um, I would say I'm rather new to the term. I mean, a few months, because I was asked to do a similar discussion sometime back in, I think, October. So eco-anxiety grossly or broadly relates to that whole part of fear and uncertainty and the powerlessness of the effects of climate change. It sort of puts a person at risk of being worried about what's happening to our world. It affects young people a lot more compared to older populations. I'm not being ageist here, but it just seems to affect them more. And um, what happens is that it puts a big psychological distance between us and what happens in the world. It makes us very very worried about the future. And uh, part of that, I mean, as you said, is that whether we're doing enough or not, is that if we are, and I, and, I, and I think this is a rather generic advice for why people need to look after their mental health, is if you're not mentally well or mentally healthy, you can't do anything at all. Your quality of life deteriorates. It permeates across every aspect of life. So we spend our time worrying, not to say that it's a choice. I mean, if we get sucked into this vicious cycle of worry, of doing and not doing enough, and getting very disheartened about the world, what happens is we put ourselves at risk, and then if you develop disorders like anxiety and depression, PTSD, etc., your ability to function reduces, so your quality of life reduces. And then in the long run, your ability to make some change, you know. Mm -hmm. So when you get too worried, you will not be able to. When you get too worried, and until you worry yourself sick, you'll not be able to make that change. Kind of self-destructive, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very bad, vicious cycle. Worry, 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 cannot make change. Worry more, worry more, and then just spirals Mm. down. So what we can do is do what you can. Because all of us have very different templates to our lives, with different commitments, with different responsibilities. Mm. We do not expect everybody in the planet to put their day-to-day mission to, to be with, to to work against climate change. You can't if you put that. It's very hard. It be, that 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 weight itself scares most of us. Oh no, what can I do? Mm. But if you put that as part of your life, it's like you put it as some choices that you can make, some conscious choices. Um, 
like using reusable bags or making or you know even starting a business of making reusable bags that are really friendly part of the problem with uh, uh, this is anything that's uh, like eating healthy uh, 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 combating climate change all of that requires more money more time more effort more difficulties how about making it less expensive less difficult to do if you can and you know try to make an entrepreneurial idea about it, about it some people do that and they do really well they market uh, good reusable bags they market uh, uh, things like uh, they partner with organizations and then they part and organizations can and you can be part of that small chain wherever you are to make that difference if you work in an organization try to make some initiatives uh, a little bit better. Now, I'm, I'm coming here very much from the layperson point of view, not even the professional or the activist, but do what you can. Even if you can't, it's okay. Uh, but of course, I won't do it because other people will do it. Not really the best way forward mm -hmm. as the problems are escalating. If all of us do our small part, we are a part of that puzzle. And of course, the least we can do is not to deny that climate change is happening. That, in fact, could be the biggest problem of all. Because when we deny something is actually happening, there's no way we can support changes. There's no way that uh, the people that are trying to make changes can make changes because we become, obstruction. we become obstructions to that. So I guess the least, if we call that bare minimum, is not to deny. Mm. And that itself is good enough because once you have that awareness, everything else will slowly fall in place. And it... Well, many activists may take it up for this following statement, but I would say this. You, the change you want to make you has to be at your pace. Unfortunately, there's a, the, the anxiety that at present is because the changes in climate are really quite bad at the moment. So that's why people are like, oh, we should all get going and all of that. But if we are supported to make that change, meaning that from the top down, uh, where policies are in place, yeah. it's much easier to make those changes. Mm. Um, I want to talk a little bit um, about who will need the most support. If we talk about who is most at risk of either the direct or indirect mental health effects. Um, and we talked about the ones who are less privileged earlier the vulnerable, um, how do we recognize um, their, you know, vulnerable, their, their vulnerable situations? Uh, you, you know, what, what is it that you'd like to share about their um, heightened risk? There is always an intersectionality of these problems. And I think that's the most important thing we need to realize. If they are vulnerable in one aspect, they're probably going to be vulnerable here. Mm. When you called me for this topic, I was reading up. The groups are same as most of the groups of people who are at risk for suicide. Most of people who are at risk for mental health problems. These are the people. You, the young, the elderly, women uh, who are singly employed, women-led households, mm. uh, people from disadvantaged communities. Mm. Specifically, now this is probably that caveat indigenous groups who live whose way of life is very intertwined with nature mm. all right we have them even in malaysia we have 
but unfortunately, a lot of studies are not done, or, or at least made known. But uh, there's one from the Inuit group of people from they did. There's a Canadian study mm-hmm. where they talk about ecological grief that is suffered by these people uh, whose way of life depends on the environment that they live in. They live in the Arctic Circle. You have a lifestyle, and that and there's that connection to land. And if we look at it across all indigenous groups of people, First Nation peoples, there's a strong connection to land. You go to Australia, that it is. You go to Interior Sarawak, that it, that it, it, it is. People live in one with nature. So when climate change affects their environment, let's just use a Malaysian example, deforestation. You take, a, to take their way of life away. You destroy their economies in case, let's say, their gatherers. Uh, example, if let's say, I'm just making this as a hypothetical example, not specific to any community. Let's say that you, your, your community's main source of income is collecting and selling honey. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, let's say because, uh, let's say people want to plant a new crop or bring in new um, bring a genetically modified crop or a genetically modified uh, pest control method or whatever that is, put it in that place, and it destroys the bee population or the plant population, you won't be able to connect honey and the supplies dwindle. Mm. Then you suddenly realize that the whole way of life of your community change uh, is no longer possible. So you don't have a way to make money. You don't have a way to support. You are suddenly forced to change the way you work or to find income. Then you might need to move. Maybe you alone have to move if you are taking care of a few people. If you are alone, it's okay. You move. You move to a new place. Then you're stressed. You're stressed because you know you have that the whole problems of migration comes in. Then what happens is uh, everything else comes. Poor coping comes in. You're left without support and all of that. So that's one thing that we do need to know. When we see people who are from vulnerable groups of people, who first we should be very cognizant about... Uh, new developments that are happening where vulnerable people live, especially indigenous groups of people live, there needs to be a lot of ethical considerations. Does this destroy lives and livelihood? We have to be careful of that argument of the greater good. That the utilitarian principle sometimes has very dangerous Kantian elements to it as well. Mm. So we've got to be quite careful mm. there too. So you've got to be mindful and you need to really Take in the experience. It's not just the experience of people that who will agree with you. People need to start listening to everyday people, the people that are there, whether they want, whether they don't want. And of course, ownership of these lands. Unfortunately, sometimes these people do not have the um, the rights to say because oh, you are you are you're just you're just here. You're just doing this. You can do it there. Not really the same. Yeah. You can do some other thing that makes you more money. Not the same too. Because we can't just take one or two people's views to look into changing and causing even more problems. And that's just groups that are people who are living in with nature. But let's talk about these other groups that are affected. Um, example, uh, if, the, if, we, if we talk about floods, they happen in low-lying deltas, where rivers are there. Their farming communities, their fisher, fisher, fishermen communities there. Got to listen to them, like, what's actually happening? What's happening to the fish stocks? People have developed through tried and tested manners over the years, and that's why we have survived so long, that our old practices are sometimes very sustainable. People don't fish more than they need to. They don't grow more than they need to. People eat 
things that are grown locally and that's all parts of where things that need to make into vogue. You want to bring in um, new ways of eating, new ways of consuming food, focus on using local products so that you reduce your carbon footprint. You don't need to bring in that particular fruit or vegetable or sea life from somewhere else and fly it over because there is a vogue on that too. Just I recently found out that certain dining options are very environmentally unsustainable, especially you have like you have that fish that is like brought in from Japan mm. and you know the timeline and all the right. and you look at that. So these are where your supports can go in. You can support these communities mm. by keeping their way of life together and generally vulnerable groups need to have that. And gotta recognize that intersectionality of the problems. And these groups have one problem. One bigger problem is they need the most, but they get the least, and it's very hard for them to get access to care. So you build services with them about they cannot you can't build services with them. You can't tell people, oh, this works best for you. Mm. You need to work with them, build in a way that so they're supported. But that's really amazing, right? That you have you know, we talked about dotting, uh, uh, the making, connecting the dots earlier, and you've drawn this huge stroke from um, not just looking at mental health and a very narrow vision of mental health care. You're looking at um, making sure that their way of life is preserved, supporting um, agriculture, supporting their trade. And all of that ties back to then how they can live their lives in a way that supports their mental health. And I think then the question is, are we equipped to do this? How do we do this? We're not just talking about buffing up mental health services then. We're talking about recognising that intersectionality, having cross-cutting policies that go across from employment um, to community uh, you know, issues, and finally to health? Well, um, I might sound like a broken record here, but everyone says this, we need to work together, that uh, we cannot work in silos. And we have been talking about that in the field of suicide prevention always. It's a complex problem, so it needs multi-pronged strategies. Yeah, even with this too, uh, you do need people to get together, to work together. And one of the things that I've learned from the suicide prevention community is you do need to listen to people who have that experience. You do need to listen to people who have been severely or even affected by climate change, the witnesses of this climate crisis. You do need to listen. And then you do need to start. In you make any initiative, you want to do a good thing. Yes, it's good. Who else will be interested? Who else can contribute? And try to get diverse viewpoints. Try to get someone who will not agree with you. That's something that we are really afraid of. We're very bad at doing that. We don't want, we want to have our team, our group of people. It's, it's easier, in fact. Like, um, you know, it's easier to just arrange a group of people who are like-minded. Yeah. Great, it's like-minded, but that, that's when what happens is that you recognize people have different views. So that's also the bigger point. And then when you talk about, you know, and you're saying, you know, making that recap just now, I sort of thought of something. When we talk about mental health care or we talk about it at right at the, the uh, what you call the clinical part of it where you have disorders, etc. But a lot of it, if you look at the WHO mental health permit, sits within formal and informal supports that exist within the community. That's the base. 
So when we do all this, you strengthen that base. A strong base is cheaper to maintain. A strong base is more sustainable. A strong base will replicate itself. That's that strength of, uh, you know, support, resilience and all that. And this is not a very... Um, it's not being all smiley and jumping from one unicorn island to another unicorn island because that's sometimes what people think that we are asked to do. Oh, you know, oh, these people, you're, you're just trying to raise a generation that doesn't want to hustle, doesn't want to stress. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other discussion altogether. But it's, uh, it's about making things sustainable, practical, without adding any problems to the system. And working together, it may be difficult in the beginning, but you get better at it. We do get better at it. And then we realize um, we get better at the sense that once we start working with people, you get those thoughts and questions. Let's say you discuss with someone and you want to share their viewpoint. You realize, oh, I do need to ask their concern whether I can use their name or their viewpoints. You realize people have ownership. So when we work together also, we need to recognize co-ownership. And and everybody owns something. That's when um, these things can go on. And they have far-reaching effects. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just deviating back to a subject of interest, but small changes have ripple effects and they affect every aspect of our lives. People would ask, like, has there been any association with climate change and suicide rates? In fact, there are studies that are done. When temperatures are going up, suicide rates also go up, even across cities and all. Of course, they're they are not a very linear relationship, but there is an association there. The things that we do the small bits, the tiny bits, it goes to that greater cost. And when we do it together, where you can, where we do what, and when we work together, what happens is we play to our strengths so that our, what we cannot do, someone else can do. And the change becomes more effective. And that's the way forward in this, the part of being sustainable. Because if you own, as I mentioned that part earlier, if you own it, you want to be part of it and you will continue it. Yeah. And everything about our discussion today, as well as when it comes to the issue of climate change, is always, it's a collective responsibility, right? Um, we tend to not um, see individual, um, you know, granular uh, impact because um, th- this this is uh, something bigger than, than each of us. And I think I want to wrap up uh, with some thoughts from you, Dr. Ravi, about how... At the end of the day, if I use some of those vulnerable communities that we talked about who are most likely um, to be hit first and hit the hardest by these kinds of impacts um, and how their mental health um, you know, will be affected for a long time to come, how can we take that on as a collective responsibility and why should we take it on? as a collective responsibility, that these are not just the others that we don't need to think about because we're not affected. But we do. So why is this a collective responsibility? Well, um, climate change affects all of us. All of us are the cause of climate change. So that's that main reason. That's the crux. Then you go on to think about if there is a disaster that happens at one place, it will eventually reach your place too. As uh, sea levels rise, you realize that you're closer to sea. <laughs> That's <you> right. <laughs> right. And then you realize when you're, what happens is when people, let's just talk about it in a very dollar and cents manner. 
let's say people have lost their homes, they're going to go somewhere else for their homes. They're going to migrate. They're going to come to maybe your place, maybe not your place, and they're going to take up resources. That's why opportunities and development needs to be across the board. You can't just develop one part of the place or one place alone because then everybody will crowd there, then there's less less resources to go around. When you have less resources to go around, what happens is all the poor coping comes in, violence, abuse, substance, substance abuse, um, violence, all of that comes in and more mental health problems. It is what you are doing if... Because people ask, like, why do I need to think about that person? Why do I need to concern about it? That doesn't affect me. I'm going to die tomorrow. Why should I care? Because it will affect you mm-hmm. slowly and steadily. Mm-hmm. And when we, lose, um, when we lose populations, we lose communities, we lose uh, places to climate change, we lose part of that biodiversity and part of what that belongs to us. And that, that, that affects all of us. You can't rebuild certain things. Something takes take years to come in. And then what happens is you suddenly realize less people come into your place for tourism. There's less tourist dollars, less mm-hmm. of jobs. When there's less jobs, there's less money, there's less investment, there's less everything. And you suddenly realize on the whole, your quality of life drops. That's how it affects us. Mm-hmm. Wherein, I'm just going to give a good example. There are some places in Malaysia where they employ, where they do very sustainable tourism where in, it's strict. It's not easy to go to those places. Uh, these are, especially if they're UNESCO heritage sites, etc. They hire people who are locally. They provide talent. They provide training. They provide con- conservational skills. You bring in the technology and the knowledge and how to do it properly. And then you bring in tourists, uh, you bring in the money, you can come in research, tourist dollars, etc., whatever that is, or harnessing biodiversity mm. for this thing. And then you realize the community grows. The community grows. And then when the community grows, you get more revenue and that revenue comes back to us. <laughs> Dollars <laughs> I mean, and yeah, cents. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just making that little dollar and cents argument. So any good initiative in the end, if we, and of course, I think this is something that we do need to sell to people who are making decisions, is that every decision has a dollar and cents thing. We cannot look at climate change as an expensive option. You have to look at it as the sustainable investment of our future. Mm. So when you think of it that way, then it's that. And then when you realize, I just want to add a point now, because I sort of say, when you look at it that way, then people will start to get invested. People will start to work together. And then, of course, there's the whole part of not everyone thinks of money. Some people are altruistic also. They work together. I just want to give an example because it's an excellent example. Uh, The recent um, landslide at... Batangkali. Uh, yeah, at Batangkali. When there was needing, there was the need to provide psycho, psychological first aid. Mm. It was done by many people, the primary care people, people from the public health spectrum, and also voluntary organizations like Suchi and so hospital-based services. Mm. The place where the where the tragedy happened was quite remote, so there's so much help and assistance. And you can see, as a community, people were rallying around. People were trying to help. People were, and it actually provided. It's it's unfortunate that that tragedy sort of re- t- spoke a lot about, uh, you know, started to give us a lot of warning bells. Mm. But it's not that you need tragedies in order to be aware. But these things serve as good reminders. Yeah. And then you realize we can actually work together. Yeah. Mm. 
This has been um, a huge conversation, I think, about uh, the impact of environmental changes, the impact of the climate crisis on our mental health, and uh, what I think we have really surfaced. Um, but also, I think, kind of on a surface level, and there's a lot more we can talk about, is that we don't just look at climate changes on their own. We don't just look at extreme weather events on their own. And we don't just look at mental health uh, impacts on their own as well. They all intersect together with um, the vulnerabilities um, of the communities around us and how it impacts us. This is a podcast I'm definitely going to listen to again, I think, and uh, you should too. So if you missed any part of this and if you'd like to listen to it again, you can download it on our website or on our BFM app. I've been speaking to Dr. Ravi Rao Paniselvam, consultant psychiatrist for Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.